0: Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services.
1: I knew my mum wanted us to have a relationship with our dad, so I'd never tell my mum how bad it was there. The weekend. I used to say, yeah, it was all right, he was good, but he wasn't. I saw my dad wake up in the morning in pain. Not physical, emotional. I could see it. I could feel it. And I watched him use alcohol and anything else to escape that pain.
0: Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. When I think about my childhood, which is a lot, I am in therapy twice a week. And all the ways my childhood has shaped me into who I am today, I can become quite angry. I see other adults around me, ones who grew up in loving environments, where there was no abuse, no loss, no suicide, households that weren't ruled by King alcohol, and I get quite jealous. I can't help but wonder what kind of person I'd have been in my twenties if I wasn't taught to hate myself as a child. What kind of relationships would I have had with others, with myself? How would I have loved? today's story is about toxic parenting and how it alters who we become as adults but also how we can stand in the way of history repeating itself and heal from our childhood experiences here's josh colinley
1: i grew up in a difficult environment my dad was a violent angry chaotic man really who sort of scared me when he was drunk and scared me when he was sober when i was a kid When I I started school, my dad went to prison. So he spent like two years in prison and then he came out when I was about seven years old, eight years old, I think. And then he'd moved into like a flat. So me and my two brothers used to go and visit him in the flat. He had like a bad alcohol problem. And then when he came out, he had like a heroin problem as well, like drug problem. The, the worst drug that he did was alcohol. Cause when he drank that, that's when he would smash the house up. That's when he would take us out in the middle of the night. He would fall asleep in his own urine and vomit. And I remember once when he came out of prison, the day he came out of prison, he was supposed to pick us up from school. And I remember like the waiting out of the playground with my teacher, so excited that he was gonna pick us up from school and he didn't turn up. He'd gone and got drunk and didn't show up. And I, I remember the teacher holding my hand and feeling how upset she was. And my concern was to make sure she was all right. And I'm like eight, seven, eight. And I'm going, don't worry, this is, he's fine. This is just what he does. I'll see him tomorrow. He'll be okay. And all of that stuff, you know. I lived my life like that, never checking in with myself and always making sure I was there for everybody else. I remember once he took us out me and my little brother and was walking through the middle of this field where like all the families go where I grew up. It was like heat waves. There's loads of people there. It was the middle of the day and he was walking along drinking super strength cider or lager out of a bowl, walking along like weeing. And I don't mean wetting himself. I mean, he's walking along, I'm in a wee laughing. You know what people are like when they're paralytic. And I'm like nine at this time walking next to him. And I remember I'm like, I remember feeling guilty firstly, because I couldn't, I wanted to like pump my chest out and say, you don't understand. Don't look at my dad like that. I believe that as an eight-year-old, I was right when I said that you don't understand. I, the intuitive kind of sensitive person that I am, I saw my dad wake up in the morning in pain. Not physical, emotional. I could see it. I could feel it. And I watched him use alcohol and anything else to escape that pain. I saw the moment where it worked, where he he went funny. I mean, it was very short-lived in the end with him, like half an hour at most, but where it seemed to work for him. You know, I saw that. And when adults looked at him in disgust, I saw... I still kind of do recognize this, a man that was in pain and struggling. I knew my mum wanted us to have a relationship with our dad. So I'd never tell my mum how bad it was there the weekend. I used to say, yeah, it was all right. He was good, but he wasn't. And then ultimately it came to the place where when I was nine, I was at his flat. I was there and he decided he didn't want to be here anymore. And I was there when I saw it happen and such was my sort of emotional responsibility for my mum when it happened and I saw it I didn't think I need to phone an ambulance I thought I can't phone an ambulance because then my mum will know that I've seen this and she won't be able to deal with that so I waited in the flat and eventually my mum rang the phone and I said look dad's really drunk So it was me and my little brother and my mum picked us up out the front and we went home and then two days later I was pulled out of school to be told that my dad had passed away from the moment my dad died he was never mentioned again there's no pictures on my house I don't know, I couldn't tell you what date my dad died still to this day. I don't know what date his birthday is to this day. There was never any pictures on the wall. Nothing is not, it wasn't never, ever remotely talked about. There's never like, you know, when i done well in football or something like that, it was never like your dad would be really proud of you. Never mentioned, still to this day, never mentioned again. Senior school is when the anger started, where I started to not be able to deal with the ways that I felt. I had a lot of hyper vigilance, a lot of emotional overwhelm. I was an angel at home because I didn't want to take up any space at home. I didn't. I never wanted to upset my mum. I saw my mum's pain at what she experienced with my dad, and I didn't ever burden her with that. I never wanted to burden her with that. So I explored all of my difficult emotions at school. When I was about twelve or thirteen, I remember I didn't. I didn't enjoy life. I. I was finding. I remember not caring at all about anything. And then life got good when I was about 12, when I, I, I smoked cannabis first and then quickly alcohol and basically anything and everything else that you had. I was 12 year old me looking for a way to make life manageable. I found a way to make life manageable and it was drinking drugs. That was the first time my life felt all right. And I remember distinctively thinking, all I've got to do is make sure I don't get addicted to this stuff like my dad did and I'll be all right. Now, when I look back objectively, I realized that I went from being somebody who really wanted to pursue drama and I was really good at it. And now I sort of recognised when I found alcohol, I was like, I'll be all right in a factory. I can't happily work in the factory and drink on a weekend because it worked like nothing else, especially alcohol. Yeah. It worked like nothing else in the world. There were no major consequences, not in my world. I'm sure there were for my mom and it made her very would would worry her on the weekends and stuff. But she always said to me, if it gets to the point where you feel like you can't stop, you better stop, because you'll be, you know, your dad tried everything to stop and he couldn't. And so, yeah, from the age of like 12, 13, I was sort of selling drugs. I loved it all. You know, I used to watch Scarface and stuff like that, like think that's what I'm going to be when I'm older. I'm going to do that, you know? And, I, I, and like, I lived for the weekend. I didn't really care about school, but I was always bright and academic. So I'd done well in school, you know? I fell in love with alcohol and drugs and everything that came with it, you know, can see now as well how little I cared about myself because I would do anything and everything without a care of it killing me. But that's how I lived, you know, and I was involved in sort of like what they call county lines nowadays, but it wasn't called that back then. I just sold drugs. I was searching and yearning for what was missing from my life when I got involved in what you might call gangs now. We certainly didn't call it that, but I enjoyed the prestige of it. I never made any money thing that i enjoyed the most was impressing somebody who was older than me and him you know telling me what gi was or whatever terminology we used by then. but you know i was looking for a dad i was searching for i was yearning for i gave them incredible loyalty i was part of something you know there was meaning in my life i felt like my life had direction i it, it was that i was going to be tony montana right which was completely unrealistic and ridiculous but i had all of those things in my life that you would want a young person to have and I found, them, I found them down the park with other people, everybody that hung about down the park and did what we did down the park. I guarantee you, every one of them was suffering from the same thing as I did. Now, it might not have been that their parent had abandoned them, but there was something going on in their world.
0: Josh's first daughter was born when he was 18, and he got a job working in a factory. He worked hard there, it was another way to escape how I felt, he told me. Another way to channel his energy anywhere but inward.
1: I realized that I could be out all weekend, go to work on Monday and still do a 17-hour shift and mean that I got enough money when I got paid because we got paid weekly where I worked. I'd have enough money the next week to still get back on it. I worked hard, but by the time I was 24, I'd been in what was a very toxic relationship. We'd had four children. And at 24, I was about £17,000 in debt. I was living on a fold-out bed at my mum's, back at my mum's house. I would see the kids on the weekend. I was about nine and a half stone, which is like five stone lighter than the I am now. I'd go to work, finish work, drink alcohol, and then I would smoke loads of weed so that I could go to sleep without having to get paralytic. The last day that I drank was the 13th of May 2012. Now, I remember being in the pub and just looking around and thinking, this ain't working anymore. This don't work. Like, I was, pa- I was steaming drunk. I had this weird moment of clarity where I was like, this don't, this don't work. But there was like, there'd be loads of stuff that built up to that. I was involved in sort of like football violence and I had shattered my jaw when we were up North at a football thing and they'd left me up there. And I'd realized that like I'd had all this surgery done on my face. And I, you know, I was seeking the same thing that I used to seek in the quote unquote gangs when I was a kid, it was the same. I was part of something. I would get to get emotions out and I tried to impress the top guy in there and all that sort of stuff. And that sort of fallen away, and I had a realization they don't care about me. I'd also had an industrial accident at work. I chopped the end of my left foot off. So I knew I was getting a lot of money for that, right? I was going to get a payout for that, which would be enough just to about clear that debt that I had. And I remember my best mate, still a good friend of mine, saying to me, when you get that money, you won't sort yourself out. You'll piss it up the wall. And I knew he was right. And I used to fantasize, like genuinely, about... Going out in a hotel room. And I knew in the back of my mind what I was thinking is when I get that 20 grand, I'm gonna check into a hotel room for a week. And then I'm gonna spend the rest of the money on drugs and alcohol. And I'm gonna go I'm gonna just go to that hotel room and that's where it'll go. And so there's like all of these moments, and then the guy who rang the pub was a compulsive gambler who'd stopped gambling. He was going to uh Gamblers Anonymous. And it was a conversation with him when I was drunk that night, and he said, Do you wanna to come to another 12-step fellowship at AA the next morning. And I said, yeah. And then the next morning, of course, I tried to get out of it. And he was like, no, we're just going to go. But I did what I'd always done. So you go to a meeting like that, there's loads of people that are getting sober. They introduce themselves as an alcoholic. I did the same. Like, they could have introduced themselves as axe murderers, right? And I would have wanted to fit in and said I'm an axe murderer. And then I knew that, like, what people do is they act amazing, surprise, amazing. And I do it with my kids and it's amazing. And I love being here. And that wasn't the truth. It was for about two months. And then I hated it, hated everything about it, hated being sober. And so I was just lying. And then I was nine months sober when I very seriously planned to end my own life because I thought, well, sober, sobriety is not for me. Everybody seems to get sober and love it. I've got sober and I hate it. I don't like doing this. I don't know how to live my life. I don't know how to be. I don't know how to deal with anything. And I went to see my kids, to say goodbye. And I planned it all and I knew I was doing it. And I thought it was the right thing to do. Because I knew what was going to happen, the past became irrelevant and the future was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my kids in a way that I'd never experienced. And I remember that that's what changed my mind. My life has been on an upward curve ever since, although it sort of drops every now and then, and I have to sort of, you know, go 10 steps back to do 20 forward, you know. It's taken me a long time to be able to reflect more properly and truthfully on my childhood, because I spent a long time hiding from it really. And I'd created a narrative about my childhood. So if you go back to when I was 24, if you'd have asked me about my childhood, I would have said, yeah, it was fine. Like it was pretty idyllic. In fact, my dad died when I was young, but I don't really remember him. And that my, you know, my mum remarried and I lived with my brothers and we had a really good life. Like, you know, had everything we wanted, went on holiday every year. And there was no no major problems right and that had always meant that i'd always framed my struggles as being something that i must have been born with because my life was so good when i was a kid it wasn't until found nicoa which is a charity that supports children affected by parents drinking i went there because i thought i drink myself and i want to support kids yeah And I did the training and then everything changed because that's when I started to realize what really happened is that when I was in a room with like 20 other people doing this training and we were sat in front of the impacts of what it's like to grow up with a parent that drinks too much, I started to realize that this was me. I was there because of me. What quickly or maybe slowly but gradually began to unravel after that is that I had to start to realize that this narrative that I'd been telling myself about my childhood was wrong it wasn't the real one right and i'd been saying different things because i wasn't yet able or maybe willing to be able to talk about the truth about my reality then i started to realize you know if i'm going to be gut level honest with myself about the stuff i need to start to grieve so i grieved for my dad to try and summarize what healing for me from you know the difficult dysfunction that i grew up in it's all about seeing my experience in its entirety and not trying to dress it up or reframe it as something that it's not. But actually just seeing the truth, being able to say, you know what? It's shit that my dad died when I was growing. And I don't need to wrap up that when I saw him do what he did, I don't need to wrap that up and go, but you know what? It made me who I am today. You know what else it did? It made me be a shit dad for six years and it made me have a real negative impact for my kids. So no, I ain't happy about it. And if I could, I'd change it tomorrow because then I wouldn't have had that, you know, there's been much less chance of me being like I was with my kids. For me, that's what healing is, is knowing that truth, but also coinciding along that is going, you know what, what I do have control over, rather than just pretending and trying to reframe that into something nice and fluffy, what I do have is my life today and I can make some change today and I could do the same thing tomorrow. At any time, in any moment, I can stop and go, hang on a minute, I'm acting out here, I'm acting out. I know I'm acting out. And I'm going to be honest about that. And that doesn't mean I'm not far enough along my journey. That means that I need to do something right now and change and make some change in my life. And that happens all the time. I mess up so bad all the time, you know, on this journey. And my healing journey is that I see that, recognize that, and I I try my best to alter the trajectory of my life as a result of that. Despite those like 10 step backs and having to do 20 step forward, my life is like, I could could not have dreamt of what I've got today. I, I, I run my own business. I get to travel and take my kids all over the world. I've remarried. We've got two more children. So there's six kids. And because of the success that I've had in the work that I do today, and I don't say that to be, to impress you, although there might be a bit of me that wants to impress people that are listening. I say it mainly to impress upon people how much my life has changed as a result of working myself, you know, I have so much freedom today. I'm taking all of my kids to Disneyland in two weeks for the weekend, right? I'm hiring a house and we're going to Disneyland. I I, I used to take them to the Wheat Sheaf. I used to take my kids to the Wheat Sheaf and sit them in the corner and buy them a Coke or juice and a bag of crisps and say, stay there until I'm done. And I don't live a life like that today. It doesn't mean I don't struggle. I still struggle, you know, but I have the tools today and I have good people in my life, I have people around me that understand me as much as we can (laughs) and help me to be who I need to be today. My life is just amazing as a result of that. You know, it is amazing. But I still struggle, you know, like I say. You know, it gets easier in some ways and in other ways it gets harder. There's always like, just when you think you've nailed one thing, you pull back another layer and you're like, oh, I've got to go again on this. (laughs) And I sort of always describe it as I get to the top of the mountain, and rather just sitting there and thinking, Let's set up and live here and look out over the vast. I'll like either look for another mountain and think, no, I'm going go to go up that one, or I'll walk down the other side of the mountain and then realize I've walked too far and I'm back at the bottom again. And I've got to start walking back up. That's kind of what my life feels like, but I love it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't swap what I have now. No. the The, the meaning of recovery to me is the ability to be able to see myself in my entirety and still have compassion easy to love myself when i'm nailing it and things are going well recovery is when i mess up and i do crap stuff rather than going on a binge or thinking well that's it i'm a disgrace of a human being i may as well ruin everything i can go "Shit, man yeah you you are a bit of a nightmare but let's sort it out you're doing your best
0: you've been listening to recovery from anything I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show, and join the community on Instagram at #RecoveryFromAnything. You can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website, RecoveryFromAnything.com. Thank you for listening.